Hello, welcome to the Art Dirt Podcast from Glass Tire, where we discuss topical art topics. I'm Rainy Knudsen. I'm Christina Reese. We took a little break because Glass Tire published a few podcasts from other people. Mm-hmm. The wonderful David McGee, uh, you and Neil did a podcast. That's right. Um, we've got we've got other podcasts coming, but we're back with Art Dirt. Uh, you know, it was nice. We had a really nice comment um, from an, a previous Art Dirt we had done uh, talking about how artists don't have to be do-gooders. Artists don't have to be making politically active art or social practice art or whatever. Right. Uh, and this came in uh, just yesterday, actually, from somebody mm-hmm. named Carolyn. And it was just, it was a very thoughtful comment. And um, she said that it's uh, politi- the politically a- active or social practice art that gets rewarded. She's like, just keep in mind, it has to make people feel good. Uh, it can't actually threaten the interests or hegemony of the powers that be. <laughs> uh, it's true. So, so it's one thing. Anyway, yeah, artists don't have to be do-gooders. But we're not going to talk about that today. Uh, today, we're talking about, first of all, it's, it's summertime, and this gets us sort of, our minds start to wander with beach reads. Well, that's true, although we're working through the summer. <laughs> it's summer, and my mind is wandering. We thought we'd talk about, we, we complained about the shows that museums mount all the time, so what shows would we mount at a museum? What would we like to see at a museum if we got to be in charge? Yeah, I mean, with all the going around that we do and seeing what we see, it's easy to think, you know, it's really easy to be in a museum and think, God, I'd really like to see so-and-so's work here, or if they're going to do this, they may as well go all the way and do this other thing, or... I'd like to see a lot more of this kind of thing throughout, you know, Texas institutions or whatever. I do it all the time. Yeah, yeah. We, we hey, we are we are happy to armchair quarterback. That's our job. Yeah, armchair curate. Armchair quarterback. <laughs> so, uh, so I have a couple of ideas. Tell me, um, tell me what you do. You have anything specific? I do. I have something specific in the sense that it just keeps. It, it keeps being validated as I, as I kind of move through various Texas institutions. But just last week I was at the McNay in San Antonio and they've got a show up called Immersed, which is for artists who've done these immersive kind of installation type things. And, but one of the artists was Chris Sauter, uh, a San Antonio based artist. And the other artists are all international people. And he did an incredibly good job. And I've got to say that of all the pieces in that show, that was the one that to me was the most effective uh, it was beautifully executed. I think that it was the most thoughtful piece in the show. And what it does is it just reminds me again and again, I think that if you give Texas strongest artists the space and the platform and the resources to make really great work, they do it. They bring their game. They, they do. And, um, this is this, to me, like the tensile strength show at the silos, it's all your yards in Houston mm-hmm. that um, Houston Arts Month puts together. Houston, is another sculpture, great Houston e- Sculpture Month. Oh, Houston, yeah, Sculpture Month puts together. I think is a great example of that. It's like give them the space, give them the give them a, a site specific place to install, and some um, unbelievably cool ideas come out of that, and some really great art. And really, frankly, some of the strongest art that I see in Texas happens when Texas artists are given that space to stretch out and perform. This, this, and, is, this is a saw that I have sawed for a long time about museums not doing a good job of this in Texas. And this isn't just a Texas problem. 
Um, but uh, if you think about Lackman in the 60s and, and giving Ed Ruscha and Ed Keenholz and other artists that, that we really associate with sort of both light and space and, you know, that sort of California art that came out in those years, 60s and 70s, LACMA did a good job of giving, giving artists shows. And Texas museums just don't do as good of a job with that. And, but, but what I'm curious to know, what Texas museums you think do do a good job or who's, who's trying? Well, I, I don't know. I will say that back in uh, 2013, the Dallas Museum of Art had this kind of set of shows under the name Dallasites. And some of it was just a retrospective of of art that had happened in Dallas from 63 to the present. And that was okay. It was I think it was underfunded and over-designed. But I think that Lee Arnold and Gabriel Ritter, who did all the research, I think they did a great job on the research. I just don't think that they really had the resources to bring a lot of the actual artwork in. So it was mostly documentation. But in the Barrel Vault uh, and the Quadrant Galleries of the DMA, they gave that over to local artists, including Homecoming Committee, who I think did an incredibly good job, as well as some of the other uh, Texas artists who were, and Dallas-based artists who were in the show. And I just, I don't think there's enough of that. There, I don't think there is any one institution. I mean, you've got the Dallas uh, Contemporary that has had local artist shows, uh, like Jeff Zilm or Kevin Dodora. You've got, obviously, the CAM in Houston, who's had a whole series of shows about, uh, you know, featuring Houston artists. Yeah, the CAM, I think, has really tried to step up to bat uh, on this issue in recent years. And they've, they've done these shows where... Um, the three curators are down to one curator now, plus the director, um, but they would each pick th one artist. So there were three artists given a chunk of space in the museum to do something. And those have been um, those have been good. I mean, it's been a good way for, I think, artists to try stuff and sometimes fail, but sometimes succeed. And it's been, you know, trying to give people those opportunities you're right. If you give our, if you give the best Texas artists the space and the resources, they'll they'll step up to it. They'll. You know what the thing is also, and you say that it, it's not just a Texas thing. That is, this is just true everywhere. But Texas, I think, is uniquely full of really fantastic artists who really aren't shown in institutions as much as they should be. I mean, California in the 60s and 70s figured out that, that they've got a lot of good artists there and they started to show them in their institutions. Texas, I think, is always just somewhat behind California. It could happen here. There's a little bit of a, you know, Dallas itself has a little bit of a, a, a status anxiety problem where it's always trying to be international. And, you know, so at the top levels, the philanthropy levels and the institutional levels that can sometimes really just ignore the local artists. I mean, as witnessed by just the fact that the city is still happy to let the fire marshal shut down all of our collectives. I mean, it's just really kind of disdainful about local art at times. But I don't think that's going to fly for much longer. I don't think that ignoring the talent on the ground is a good <laughs> policy politically or uh, artistically or, and it's not honest. It's not even honest to pretend like there aren't some really good artists here. No, I mean, I think politically, they don't care. Unless they care about supporting artists who happen to live in Texas. Um, but they see, I think a lot of museums see that as community service, if you will. You know what I mean? I don't think they, I don't think there's the same regard for it. So let me say this. Uh, and as a, in a sense of like personal experience, when I had Road Agent, uh, a gallery that I owned in Dallas for three and a half years, and when I was running 
these two galleries over at TCU uh, as curator, the Fort Worth Contemporary Arts had a kind of a national and an international program as well as, you know, whatever I was going to program there. And again, it was a situation where if I gave uh, local artists an opportunity, you know, I could identify, it, feel, it feels like I could identify the people who are really up to the task. And those were definitely some of the best shows I had. Again and again, some of the most memorable shows that I had, even though I was sometimes programming in national or international artists. So I get frustrated. You know, when I go see that silo show and I'm like, God, this is amazing. That's great. But I just want to see so much more of that. Yeah. I love that Chris Souter, who is an artist I've admired since I first saw his work at the now defunct James Gallery in Houston in 1998. I love that Chris Souter who is just is sort of a quintessential San Antonio person, is kicking Yayo Kusama's God, ass at the, at, at the McNay. Like, of course they have an infinity room. Of course. Yeah. But Chris is the one who's really bringing his game. Yeah. No, it's great. It's a, it's a really, really good piece. Um, so what about there's you? A, there's what? a specific... Uh, there's there's. I was trying to think of... Because I knew that this was going to come up. I knew we were going to sort of harp on Houston, or, or rather Texas artists not getting museum shows. And, you know, and I definitely would pick out the MFAH as a big, um, a big offender in this area. Uh, but when I was trying to think who specifically, which artist specifically should have gotten a big museum show by now and have not... Yeah. Um, can you think about those? Cause I know, like, for, I know there's one which who's Paul Kittleson, who's a sculptor in Houston, oh, whose work is wait. absolutely great. So great. So smart. So inventive with his materials. Um, just wonderful the way he looks at the world and he's never had a solo big museum show. When I think about Houston, I would love to see. Uh, a retrospective at the MFAH probably, or, I mean, the CAM could do it, of all the conceptual artists, the good conceptual artists of Houston over mm. the years. Because it's really, it's a pretty strong legacy there, uh, I, I think more so than other Texas cities. Um, they did they did something kind of like that when Toby Camps curated the No Zoning show. Mm-hmm. Um, famously, we have no zoning in Houston, no building zoning. And so the show was about artists really working outside of the arts world system and right. doing stuff in a guerrilla fashion, mostly in the 80s. So some of the conceptual artists were in that, but there were other types of artists as well. Yeah, right. And it's not that to say that Dallas-Fort Worth hasn't had good conceptual artists over the years or some good collectives that have done some some wonderful crazy stuff but I think because Houston's a little bit it's a little newer to me in terms of you know figuring it all out and taking trips down there and seeing stuff but I'm just I feel like Houston is a little more steeped in a sort of history of conceptual art and I want to know about it I want to see it I want to learn it I think Um, a lot of that came out of who was teaching at the University of Houston and the University of Houston scene in the 80s um mm -hmm. I think that's where a lot of that came from, actually. You know, I I think about specific artists, and, like, you can't swing a cat in San Antonio and not think of quite a few artists who should have had a big museum retrospective by now, you know? I will say that I think that the Chuck Ramirez show uh, at the McNay and just his presence uh, through that city during the retrospective, I I think it really worked. I loved getting to know his work a lot better. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I that mean... Was, that was meaningful for me. That was a big deal. And I still think about it. I still think about Chuck Ramirez on a regular basis. What was good about that show, and this is what a show like that can do, is I was did not have a high regard for Chuck's work before seeing that show. And I still think it's it's compromised, and it, it, it is what... It, it's okay. Um, but because it was so fleshed out, because it showed some of his earlier projects that I thought were a lot more robust than the photography that he's most well known for, mm-hmm. you know, I got a much more nuanced sort of understanding of Chuck's work from that mm-hmm. show. Mm-hmm. Um, and and even the the photography, you know, understood sort of more where he was coming from with all that. I just, I really liked it. And the, the, the fact that they recreated his art pace residency was great. So... So a lot of times, that's one of the things that a, a visionary show can do, mm-hmm. can give a much richer understanding of an individual artist's work than maybe sort of what's out there. And I know they did Chuck because it's a feel-good story, and he had died unexpectedly, and the film was coming out about his work by Wally Films. And I mean, I know that's sort of why they did it. Um, and I think there are other artists who probably are more deserving of a museum show in San Antonio than Chuck Ramirez. I, I know that's sacrilege to say, but I think it's true. Um, you know, and Jesse Amato comes to mind on the younger mm-hmm. end of the spectrum. I love Joey Farso's work. I mean, there's quite, a, there's several people there who I think deserve a big show. Um, but, but, but that's okay. Cause I was, I was glad to see it and I was glad that they did it. I think that the, the collecting museums, are the ones that have to step up. The Kunsthallers do a good job. I mean, the CAM has done a much better job in recent years than they did for a long time. Yeah, and Dallas Contemporary. I mean, I've got to I've got to take my hat off to them for including local artists in a lot of their most recent shows over the past few years. I have um, a I have a specific idea for a show that I would love to see the Museum of Fine Arts do. Because what's that? because that museum is known for its photography collection which is massive. Um, um I feel like just an easy, hugely crowd-pleasing show that they could do would be a, a survey of documentary photographers from Houston. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I we're getting, love we're, that kind of thing. I would no, love I mean, to see that it's show. pictures of Houston by Houston uh, photographers, and we're getting ready to do profiles of some of these people, like Early Hudnall and and uh, Ben DeSoto and George Hickson and, and other people. And so... yeah. Uh, you know, I think to me, if they were to do a big survey of documentary photography, and this same thing, by the way, could be done in every city in Texas. In every city. I love seeing photos of Dallas in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. I love it. Yeah, um, it's fascinating. And it's also fascinating when you look at different people who were interested in different scenes. You know, mm-hmm. in Houston, early Hudnall, I mean, his his photographs of Freedmanstown, that that place is gone. That history is gone. It is. Mm-hmm. It has been wiped off the face of the city, and there's, you know, condos and whatever in that in that space now. And it's important to have that record. And he was there doing stuff in the '80s that nobody was nobody in, in an area that nobody was paying attention to. Likewise, George Hickson in the punk scene, in the art scene, in the urban animal skate scene. You know, the very very early art car scene when it w- was not all sort of corporate and and splashy those were those photographs are really really important and really good and they captured a moment in houston that's gone now yeah i think that's a terrific idea i was thinking we've already talked about the fact that i'd like to see the texas biennial be taken on by a major institution with some money with some Mm -hmm. backing Mm -hmm. to turn it into a really spectacular statewide show so 
I'll throw that back in there. We don't have to go over all of that again because we've actually already done a podcast about it. Yeah. But that's a show that I would really like to see is a Texas biennial that's a true Texas biennial. Yeah. Which is really just goes hand in hand with what I was saying at the beginning of this podcast, which is I just want to see Texas artists given the space to really stretch out. Well, the nice thing about those survey shows, I mean, I'm now long enough in the tooth to have to seen a lot of these things come and go in Texas. And I remember the old 22 to watch shows that uh, what was then Austin Museum of Art used to do when Dana Fries Hansen was there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what happens now with some perspective is you realize, just like with the Whitney Biennial, most of those artists never go on to do anything. Most of those artists fall by the wayside. It's, it's too hard whatever. Well, most, just most artists. Most artists. Yeah, no, no, I'm just saying, uh, but a, a tiny percentage of them do keep working. And as a snapshot of sort of what's being made at the time, those surveys are really, uh, enjoyable and interesting. And, and they're a, the sort of first platform for a lot of people or yes. in the case of a Whitney biennial or a Texas biennial, they're not the first platform, but they're an ongoing platform for a work under artists whose work has changed or they're doing something new. I, I love those surveys. I would love to see the Texas biennial get really robust, sharpen its focus in terms of, you know, where it is, how it's shown, all that stuff. And, um, and start capturing what's going on in this state because it does change and make it a triennial, like do whatever you got to do to keep it going. But um, yeah, yeah. But I, I think I think that I would love to see a really good Texas survey of art happening on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Me too. And again, that's no substitute for a really good, robust, big uh, solo show for an artist who merits it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and that uh, an artist being included in a survey is not going to do the same thing for the artist as being having a solo show, of course. Right. And most of the artists who are in a survey don't have the kind of body of work to, you know, do a solo show. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, we see a lot of solo shows that probably should have never happened. Cause... Or should have been or should have been a one gallery show. Right. That's right. Should have been essentially a, essentially a commercial gallery show in a museum, <laughs> which I guess is what so many of them are these days. Oh boy, howdy. But uh, it's funny, I was just in Boston, I'm going to be writing about Boston, but I was, and we visited, you know, the major museums, but I went to the ICA, of course, and there was a show by Kevin Beasley there, who's, he's a New York-based gallery, he's from Virginia originally, Uh and it was just such a revelation, it was such a well-installed show, really robust, pretty much, you know, I guess one body of his work, or maybe sort of, this is all that he's doing right now, it's, it's fabrics, in hardened resin and he's cast them in various ways and there's sound elements to some of them, but it was incredibly moving. It was a wonderful show. Like a show like that, that to an artist who deserves it, it will stick with you that I will always remember seeing that show there. Um, and so that's anyway, that's why I just wish the museums could stop doing such obvious suspects sometimes. You know, it just, uh, all the, all the artists, locally who get to see the fact that one of their peers is getting some attention and being celebrated and being it's supported hugely in that way. important it is it's so, so important. important yeah and it, it just raises everybody's game and i think it, i think it's not just sort of traditionally understood visual art if you think about it particularly the big collecting museums they have decorative arts departments they have film departments they do stuff that's not sort of art art as it were yeah. You know, I'd love to see shows of Texas designers. I'd love to see shows of Texas filmmakers uh, or, you know, screenings of Texas films. Yeah. Uh, you know, so on and so forth. Um, it's just, it, I think it is nothing but good. 
creates a richer sense of this place we're living in and the people who are doing the cool work here. I can I can hear the curators and the museum trustees and everybody and the directors saying like we can't make any money off of these shows. We can't get them to travel. No one wants them, blah blah blah. You know, I can just hear it hear it now. Well, I'm sure that all of these museums have attendance records for, you know, how shows by local artists do compared to shows by anyone else. Um, I mean, I'd be surprised if the Chuck Romero show at the McNay didn't do very, very well for them. Yeah. It, and, and when you talk about goodwill, which is hard to measure. Yes. Uh, it creates enormous goodwill. So I, I think we've covered this topic. I think, I think you and I are on the same place about this. We're not arguing. Uh, let me pause and just bring everyone's attention to the classifieds on Glass Tire. Our classifieds listings have job listings and calls for entries for artists, grants, um, other volunteer opportunities, kids camps, all kinds of stuff. It's all free. So if you are out there and you're looking for a job in the arts in Texas, go go check it out. So our second topic for today is mm-hmm. uh, now that we've tried to shame the museums, I'm I'm sure they're. I'm sure their tails are really deep between their legs at this point. Yeah, of course. Um, is uh, our art writing prize that we are launching this fall. I'm very excited That's about this. That's right. That's right. The Glass Tire Art Writing Prize, which is uh, for this inaugural version, um, it's taking place in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And well, it's only open to students uh, in Dallas-Fort Worth area universities, and this is a totally practical uh this is what we can handle this first year we mm-hmm. have wonderful judges Augustine Artiega who's the director of the Dallas Museum of Art and Bothwell from KERA in Dallas um we we don't know how this is going to go we don't know how many submissions we're going to get um so we're trying to structure it so that so we are identifying the best arts writers out there and giving them a shot to get published on glass tire and to get some money um but I'm very excited about this well, you know, we're always looking for new writers and new contributors, and every year in the summertime, generally, we've put out a call for writers uh, that's just more general, and it's it can be kind of overwhelming. This art prize is a spin on that, and it's a little more specific, and it's specific, it's uh, targeting, you know, it's targeting these university uh, students, and I want to say um, we we put out a news item about it, and... In the comments section underneath it, there was a Dallas area art professor who came into the comments section and at first was just saying, you know, what basically what is an art prize or why if if the people who submit something aren't going to get substantial feedback, you know, what's the point? And at first, my kind of knee jerk reaction to that was like, but that's your job, you know. <laughs> People are paying a tremendous amount of money to go to your university so that you can teach them how to actually think critically. At, at his, in, in all fairness, at his university, I think the MFA uh, uh, tuition is free. I don't know about MAs, though. Well, yeah, that's true. I think I, 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 I am talking about the undergraduate uh, tuition, which is which is extraordinary there. But, mm. um, you know, he's getting paid a lot of money to be the one who sits there and gives feedback um, what makes me, and then, and then in a subsequent comment, he wrote, you know, what are some other ways that you could use the prize money? Could you basically have, I mean, essentially what he was setting up is this idea of having writers workshops where these same university students come in and everyone reads their essay around the table and everyone gives everyone feedback, basically like a 
grad school critique mm-hmm. sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I took uh, criticism classes in college that were exactly like that. We would go see Reservoir Dogs. We'd come back. Everyone would write an essay or an op-ed or, excuse me, a review about it. Everyone would read around the table. This would take days, by the way. Um, it takes a lot of time to do what he's, what he's suggesting. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not that it's not useful. It is. I still don't know how to draw the line between... <laughs> What our job is, this glass tire, which is a working journal, mm-hmm. versus what he's suggesting. I don't think that glass tire should not do writing workshops. I just don't think it's something that we have the infrastructure to do right this second. And I don't think that this is the quickest way to find contributors who are already sort of ready to go, which is what we're trying to do. It's. I think he was saying that having this competition take place with no one getting any feedback is sort of um, rewarding somebody in a vacuum. And yeah, he, he said to accept a prize is to tacitly agree to the hierarchy constituted by the prize. You can't take the money and say, but I don't agree with competitions or the whole idea of a panel of judges passing judgment, negotiating horse trading or worse. I thought that was a weird red herring in the midst of his comment. I actually dismissed that out of hand. I mean, I think that... That was the thing that I really uh, focused on. And um, to say I don't agree with competitions, I don't agree with competition, like, that that's absolutely ridiculous. You know, there is... That's the real world. <laughs> there's... in When you buy toilet paper and you pick one toilet paper over another, they are competing for your you know, patronage. When you look at art, you, you, they are competing. And the idea that they're not competing for your, you know, appreciation, time, whatever is ludicrous. Uh, you, you, you're always judging. You are always judging art and you judge. How you spend every second of your day is a judgment call that you make based on whatever competition is winning out in that moment. I, I don't know how much of this kind of teaching they're doing uh, in the universities about, you know, really, really teaching them to think critically. I think that that's one of the points of the MA and the MFA. But... Yeah, but unfortunately, I, the MA beats all the good writing out of people, and they come out, you know, spewing incredibly anodyne, uh, consistent. It all sounds the same. Nobody has a unique voice. Nobody has an opinion, God forbid. There's a lot of dancing around descriptive language. Um, and they and they never say this is good or this is bad. I don't, I'm not sure that everyone is wired to put out a strong opinion about everything. Uh, although increasingly that's, you know, that's uh, sort of encouraged through social media, et cetera. But whenever, everyone, when, so everyone now thinks their opinion is, you know, should be given equal weight, et cetera, et cetera, which is just not true. We've written about these kinds of things before, and we've talked about these kinds of things before. Yeah, I, I think I think when you think about the writers who are writing about art in America, who people are paying attention to, who has an MA in art history? I don't know that any of them do. I don't. I don't think uh, you know Carolina Miranda in L.A. who's great. I don't think she does. We know Jerry Saltz doesn't. We, we know, know Jerry Saltz. We know Peter Sheldahl doesn't. We know Peter Sheldahl doesn't, you know, so on and so forth. I just think uh, uh, good writing and, you know, whether or not people are even going to continue to read is a whole another issue. But, yeah. but, but what we're interested in with this prize is rewarding a young person who is, is really putting themselves out there in an interesting and engaging way, whose writing is interesting to read. Who has, this is a, who has an idea that's not just description. 
Right. And this is a way for us to identify that person quickly and efficiently. Um, the other thing, the idea about work workshops is a whole other, it's a whole other exercise. It's one I would like to actually explore at some point, but right now I just want to see who is in our universities who can think and write clearly. Yeah. I don't think it is the job of an arts publication to do workshops for aspiring writers. I you know, having said that I myself led a workshop for writers, uh, in Atlanta with the publication Burnaway that they do a, they do a writer's workshop there. Yeah. I, I like that. I like that Burnaway did that. Here's what I'll say about this. And I wrote an op-ed about it about maybe three years ago about how I lament the fact that, you know, when I came up through writing, I was in editorial offices. That's how I really learned was at the feet of a lot of editors and it was enormously useful. So my school didn't end when I graduated from school. You know, my whole experience of learning how to be a journalist took place in the actual spaces of journalists. And we don't have that anymore. Everything's decentralized. It's all just internet. It's all email. It's all texting. And the idea of being able to really walk a young writer or reporter through the process of becoming a good journalist has gotten lost. And I am sad about that. I'm, um, it bothers me. I think it makes it, it make it, I think it makes the job of a would-be journalist or critic a lot harder. I think it is. I think it's just, I think it does feel like a vacuum probably to a lot of people. It does. All I can, all I can say is that, you know, for Glass Tire, at least number one, we're dedicated to the subject that we do. We do encourage strong opinion and we do pay. We do pay. Um, and we've always paid. I've always, I've, I've never, no one has ever written for Glass Tire ever for free. Yeah, and I'll, here's what I will say that as as the editor of the site and the person who works with all the contributing writers who 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 write for us, you know how much uh, I interact with the individual writers really depends on the individual writers and how much they want me to interact with them. And especially I've had some young writers who, when I come back to them and say I can't run this as it is, it needs more reporting. You need to pick up more phones. You need to get more information in. It's not, I can't run it the way it is. It's not credible. I've had some young writers just basically disappear on me after that. They just ghost me. They're Mm -hmm. done. Mm -hmm. They can't take the criticism at all of the fact that in the real world, you have to, you know, real journalism looks and feels a certain way. I've had others who are like, well, let's go have coffee. Let's go talk about this. Let's do more. And they want to learn. And, you know, the squeaky wheels really do get the grease when it comes to me. And my time. So um, what? So you, as the editor, like, what is your goal with the art prize? Like, what do you hope? I I think in some ways this is just a different uh, method for going about finding new contributors that I hope works because there's prize money attached to it, because it's a little bit more. Um, we're promoting it a little bit more. You know, I don't know that it's going to be substantially different from putting out just a regular call for contributors like we do in the summertime. But I think that if everyone who wants to apply, you know, they're amongst their peers. If they're like, are you going to apply? What are you going to write about? What's the deal? You know, there's some dialogue going on there. Maybe a greater sense of competition will help. I want everyone to step up their game a little bit. I don't want just kind of wishy-washy, like, well, I, I went to see a show the other day and I have some thoughts about it. It's like, well, I, I would like to see something that's actually shaped, that looks like it's almost ready for publication anyway. 
Um, what does that look like? You know, of course I do. Of course that's what I want to see. Of course What I really want to do is I just want to be wowed. Well, anyone who's wishy-washy is not going to win the prize. No, I want to be wowed. I want want to see somebody who has, and I don't know how much this can be taught, but, you know, when we do calls for submissions, so many of the submissions that I do get in, they really do write around this stuff. They just write descriptions of a show, or they write very academic kind of jargon about a show. Yeah. It's like, I have no idea how you felt about this show. I don't know if you liked it or didn't. I don't know if you think that it's effective. I don't know if you think that this artist is on the right track. I don't know if it affected you at all. I don't know if you're recommending it. I have no idea if you're telling people that it's worth going to see. At least tell me whether or not I should spend my time going to see it. The The good news for our prize is that it will be an assigned topic so that um, people will not be just sent out into the wild to review a show. There will be some structure around it, which also helps the readers who get to read this, you know, everybody addressing the same issue. I'm really excited about it. And I think, I think this i i respect and i understand people who would say you need to make this more of a collaborative thing you need to make this more open so that more people are touched by it more writers get some kind of feedback or get some kind of good experience i get i get why people say that and i don't dismiss it i just think that writing is essentially a solitary activity Mm-hmm. Um, except in the fact that writing is informed by reading and in that way you are interacting with other writers. But it, I don't know that it is really useful um, for us to try and recreate an academic setting where people are doing group crits or something. I think that at what, what we're professionals and we're interested in people who are not in school anymore or who are getting ready to get out of school. And this is why we've opened it just to grad students or senior undergrads. As I said, you know, when I was doing these kind of group crit classes in college, it took a very, very long time to get through everyone's stuff, and there were always some writers in the class who were so terrible, and to spend a tremendous amount of time on their work out of politeness was really, it was a waste of everybody's time, but because we were in school, we all accept that, because everyone's paying the same price to be in the classroom, and it really is different when it comes to us. I would like to think that this writing prize, this inaugural writing prize, is going to lead to bigger and better things, more things, more components, possibly it could lead to workshops later on. I don't know. And um, I'm, well, and I'm, it's going to be ultimately, it will be statewide in a later iteration. And yeah, exactly. we will really look at whether or not it needs to, there needs to be a university component. Universities are a really nice vehicle for spreading the word. You know, we reach out to professors. There's a lot of practical considerations this very first year that we're, we're just trying to figure it out. But Overall, our goal is to encourage people to, you know, put pen to paper with juicy, interesting, readable ideas about art and, and you know, encourage more of that in Texas. So those are our thoughts about all that. Uh, uh, what is your favorite? All right. What's your favorite summer food? I love sushi anyway, and sushi is great for summer because it's not hot. Uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I like chicken salad. I eat a tremendous amount of chicken salad. Yeah, mm-hmm. my I know mine. Gazpacho is a is a big one. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I can find it, I don't make it. Although Richard makes a good one. What about you? Oh, corn. I love corn. I love summer corn. I love summer. It's basically, actually, produce generally. Summer peaches, summer corn. Mm. Mm. I, I see. This makes me want to go, like, make a salad with some cherry tomatoes and corn and fresh herbs. Doesn't that oh. sound good? Sauteed yeah. and... Yeah. 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 I'll probably have a bowl of cereal. I'll be... <laughs> I'm going to be cooking this next week. I feel like cooking. <laughs> 
see some art. Go see some art.